Amen. Amen. I like that. That song hits. I like that. Um, can I get a music stand? I'll, I'll, take, I'll take whatever I can get. Here we go. Thank you. Sorry about that. Well, um, this week, I was supposed to be uh, sitting with you guys, and my buddy Dennis from down at Impact was supposed to be speaking this morning, and he had uh, something come up late Monday night, and uh, he's not able to make it. So you're stuck with me again this week. Oh, come on, come on. I, I know. Hey, hey, I know how it is. It's all good. So, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm putting together this week, and, and I was kind of taken back at where this message left me. I want to start with a little story that, that took place uh, close to 40 years ago now. So, it was 1984, and a man by the name of Sonny Vaccaro was becoming a real headline name in the world of basketball because he was the guy who knew the players, he knew the agents, and at this time, basketball, the NBA, it was not a big deal. It was still kind of up and coming, and one thing that did not exist or, or wasn't very prevalent at that time was the apparel and brands, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, Under Armour. These weren't that big of a deal in basketball, but Nike found Vaccaro and said, we want to invest in, in you, but more importantly, we want, to have a, we want to have spokespersons for our brands who are some of these basketball players because we want to get in on the ground floor. It was kind of open season. Whoever got there, whoever was well-known, uh, that was who would end up winning, and so they go to Vicar and say, here's our, here's our plan. This year, the, the NBA draft is going to happen, and we think there's some really good players who are going to come out of this draft. So we have $2 million. We, bet, we want to invest half a million dollars on the top four draft picks this year. Half a million dollars each. Our goal is to make $5 million out of this total investment. If we can make $5 million out of the total $2 million we invest, we're doing good. This is the bet we want to make. And Vicaro said, nope, don't do it. Because at least one of those guys is not going to be the player that you hope he is going to be. What you need to do is take $2 million and invest all of it in one player. One guy. That's it. And they said, okay, we're going to take your advice. You know, guys. So who do you think it should be? Here's what's fascinating. The, you, you would think common knowledge would tell you that whoever gets picked first is going to be the best player. So you'd pick the first player, right? Vicaro said, nope, don't pick him. It was Akeem Olajuwon, Houston Rocket legend, right? Great. Did not pick. He said, nope, don't pick Olajuwon. Then the next guy came up, Sam Bowie. He said, nope, don't pick Sam Bowie. He's not going to be very good. But the third guy came up and they said, go with him. That's your guy. That's who you want to invest with. We should have a picture of that. that anybody know who that is? That is the guy they invested in. They said, we're going to go all in on Michael Jordan. And they go all in on Michael Jordan. And again, the goal to, was invest $2 million and make $5 million in sales revenue. If you know Jordan brand, you know this worked out okay. All right? Their goal was to make $5 million in that investment. Uh, that was at the time. And they were hoping, like for all time, they would make about $5 million dollars. As of this year, Jordan Brand brings Nike $5 million of revenue every five minutes on average. Decent investment, right? 
So, but here's the truth. In a lot of ways, it was an investment, but it was, it was kind of a bet. In a lot of ways, they bet $2 million that people would want to be like Mike, that they would buy Nike, that they would buy his apparel, that they would make a lot of money on it. And there's a chance it doesn't work out. Had they gone with Sam Bowie, they wouldn't have made hardly anything. His career tanked very, very quickly. Had they gone with Olajuwon, they would have made money, but not nearly as much as they did with Jordan. And so, but it's not just there. There are places and there are ways in life where we make bets. I have made plenty of bets in my life. When I went to college, I was betting that the institution that I went to would equip me, empower me, enable me, and educate me, and connect me enough that I would land a job so that I could make enough money to pay that school back the tens of thousands of dollars that I owed them for the education in the first place, All right? And, and here, but here's the truth. Getting a college degree, especially now, does not guarantee a job. It doesn't. And in some worlds, a master's degree doesn't guarantee that. It's a competitive world we live in today. So I bet a lot of money that that education would put me in a place that I wanted to be financially. September 21st, 2013, I stood before a woman and bet the rest of my life that we would be together, that we would love one another in sickness and health and good times and bad and richer and poorer. Because I was betting the rest of, not just my money, everything that we would do life together and she returned the bet. She matched it actually. And we have both won somehow, all right? I bet the same thing with, with my two older daughters who were there at the wedding, that I would be their father. And there's a whole lot of things that we could run into. We've, and we've had our issues just like any parent and child does, but it has been a blessing. That bet has paid off. It was a big bet when our family said, we will leave our jobs in San Antonio, we will sell our home, and we will move here to the Katy Richmond area and be and call Cinco Ranch Church of Christ our home. It has paid off in a big, big way. It's been beautiful. It's been awesome. Bets. Here, here's the truth. In life, everyone makes bets. Okay? But here's the thing that I will point to also. In, in true like betting, like if you go to a casino, you're not betting on yourself. You're betting on chance. You, you put a coin in a slot machine, you press a button, pull a lever, whatever it might be. You, you play a, a game of cards, you need the certain cards to win. You don't control what cards come out. You bet on the outcome of a sporting event. If a, did you know if a pro athlete bets on the game that they are playing in, then they can get like banned from the sport altogether, even if they bet on themselves to win. They can still get banned because the bets that we make, everyone makes bets in life, but it's always easier to bet on yourself. When I went to college, I was not betting on the institution. I was betting on me. When I got married, I was betting on my wife, but also myself. So it's in these, in these bets that we make, we are betting on ourselves because, you know, we get to control the outcome. That's a good thing. We love to have that control. In Luke 18, Jesus invites a rich young ruler to make a bet. Because this rich young ruler goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and he says, well, you know the commandments, you know the law, the prophets obey these. And he says, well, I've done that. Anything else? He says, well, you do lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Take that money you get. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. Now, here, here's the truth about this that, that made this so difficult for the rich man. 
it wasn't just his money. See, scripture, in scripture, the rich young ruler does not even have a name in the story. He's just a rich young ruler. And the truth is, he's probably okay with that because it could be the poor broke man instead. But he's the rich young ruler. Now, he also says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Most scholars point to he's probably inherited that money because of how young he is. And so to ask what must I do to inherit, well, he's inherited the money already. How would he inherit this as well? You see, the money is only part of this. Jesus isn't just saying give up your money. He's saying give up your identity as a person who has a lot of money. Because the money is one thing, but who you are to lay that down, that is something much deeper and much trickier. Now, I wanna dive into a little bit of what Jesus describes when he talks about the costs of following him. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus is walking along a road. It's, the story starts in verse 57. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus is walking along a road and someone says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus' response is this, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but just know the son of man has no place to lay his head. Translation, I am homeless, I sleep on the ground. If you're one of my followers, you definitely will sleep on the ground. He keeps on going in the story. Someone else goes, Jesus, I want to follow you, but my my father, he's getting older in life. He's probably going to die really soon. Let me go see my father in his final days. I'll bury him, and then I'll come follow you. Jesus looks and says, let the dead bury their own dead. Your job is to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's a little harsh, isn't it? And then finally, there was one other man who said, okay, Jesus, you got it. I'm not, I'm not here to stall. I'm following you. I belong to you entirely. And Jesus, but the man says, here's my one thing. Can I just go back home to my family real quick and say goodbye? I mean, this is a man who's literally saying, I'm going to abandon my wife and my children in the name of following you. And Jesus looks at the man and says, anyone who is willing to look back from the plow to turn his head away, to look at what is past is not fit for the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness. This is so much more extreme than what our culture might tell us of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You know, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus goes back to the whole cost of following him. And he he says this, Luke 14, he said, anyone who wants to follow me, anyone who wants to be my disciple, he must be willing to hate his brother, his sister, his father, his mother, his spouse, his children. He must even be willing to hate his own life by comparison. And then he shares these two illustrations. He said, if a man is going to build a house, is he not going to sit down and think about the cost of building everything? Otherwise, he's going to finish the foundation and be out of money only to realize he never built a house. He just built a foundation. He will be laughed at by everyone there and be called a moron, a fool, because, well, he didn't think things out. He said, better yet, if a king has 10,000 warriors and he is going to go to battle against another king who has 20,000 warriors, is that king not going to first sit down with his counselors and ask, do we really stand a chance of winning this battle because we're so outnumbered? And if he de- and they say, no, there's no way you're gonna win. Is he not gonna go send delegation to the other king to say, let's discuss terms of peace before you murder us all? And Jesus said, in the same way, you must count up the cost. Point number two I wanna make, don't follow Jesus until you have fully counted the cost. 
Because in our culture, doesn't it seem like there's something that has been going on lately where we, we've dumbed down what it means to truly follow Jesus? Hey, just nod your head, just say a prayer. Stand and raise your hand. Just, you know, if you give this amount, if you're willing to say yes, and don't get me wrong, those things aren't bad, they aren't sinful, they aren't wrong, and that, that is a good starting point, but our culture has turned this into just, you know, raise your hand, say a prayer. That's it? After everything he says right here of what that looks like, surely that's not what it is. Now, I could spend the rest of the time here talking about all the different reasons why people, why we have dumbed down what it means to follow Jesus. And we could spend the next two to three hours and we could do a bunch of shaking our heads at all these people who don't take their faith seriously. That's, that would be really easy to do. But I, I want to go back to one of the original reasons that, that most theologians point to as, as something that happened that was actually catastrophic to people following Jesus into the mission of God. 312 AD or CE, there's an emperor by the name of Constantine who's going into battle. And right before he goes into battle, he notices the clouds in the sky part. And he notices after these clouds part, he looks up and there in the sky is a vision of Jesus and a cross. And he looks at his uh, other, other generals. He looks down at his army to think, maybe I'm the only one. Is this like a daydream? Is this? And they're all looking up too. He asks them all and they say, yeah, we see it too. Now, up to this point, following Jesus, Christianity was very, very illegal in the world at that time. Procles professing Jesus as Lord would get you a one-way ticket to death in a variety of gruesome and grisly ways in that world and at that time. Constantine looks and sees this and realizes and begins reading the story, hearing about Jesus, and he says, you know what, this must be, Jesus must be a God. Now, this is, there's a slight shift because he didn't say he's the son of God, we should all give our lives. It was he's a God, as in, well, so is Zeus, and so is Dagon, so is Baal. Let's add Jesus to the list. But here's the big shift. At that point, being a Christian becomes legal. You cannot have your property seized. You cannot, be, you cannot have family taken away. You cannot be killed for being a Christ follower. Well, then as time would go on, he would change it. And other emperors after Constantine would change it. Not only is Christianity legal, everyone should consider being a Christian. And then it eventually became everyone has to be a Christian in the world. And it went on and on, and we still experience that religious freedom today. Here's what's fascinating about this. Most missional theologians, people who talk about what is the mission of God and how God is going about accomplishing it here in this world, most of them will argue that Constantinian shift was one of the worst things that could have happened to the mission of God. Sounds a little weird. Here's what they're talking about. They looked at these passages that we read from Luke 9 and Luke 14 about what the cost of following Jesus is. And what they pointed to is it went from being willing to give up your entire life and everything you know and who you are and who you love in the name of Jesus to just raise your hand. Because now following Jesus isn't about giving up yourself. It's about convenience. Doesn't it sound good to go somewhere when you die? And they said, it looks so different now. Here's what I'll say, and, and, and I want to point to this. I want to say this real quick. I am not hoping that persecution becomes a thing 
in the United States of America. I'm not sitting here thinking, man, I hope they end up arresting all of us for worshiping Jesus. I love the fact that we have religious freedom. I do. But it comes with a cost of challenging ourselves to lay down ourselves and everything of who we are and what we know, what we love, and give it to Jesus. It becomes so, so difficult as a result of that. But this has become a real challenge, and what that looks like is changing in some big, big ways. Here's, the, here's one of the big points I want to make. Following Jesus requires sacred sacrifices. Following Jesus requires sacred sacrifices. And here's what I mean when I say sacred sacrifices. I'm not talking about some spiritual Christian ritual that we have forgotten about from our tribe. What I'm talking about is think about what is sacred to you. Think about what matters very dearly because I think about myself and I don't think I am the rich young ruler. Am I someone who has money? Yeah, I have some money. But I am by no means the wealthiest person in my neighborhood, or probably not in this room. I'd be shocked if I was. And I mean, guys, this is Katy, Texas. Everybody's rich. Fun fact, if you have a combined household income of $80,000 or more, then you make 100 times more than 70% of the globe. Okay? Take that into perspective. That's how rich you are. Because... I know a lot of us, and I know I'm someone who I'm thinking, holy cow, I have a lot. But, you know, if I had to lay down, if my family and I had to lay down all our money, I also think, you know, we've got some family members who I know would take us in. We have some friends who I know would take us in. I know we have a church family who would collectively take us in. So I think, you know, I, I don't know that I'd enjoy that, but if that's what Jesus was really calling me to, I think I could do it. Do you have a picture of my family that's up there? Can we, can we put that up? Whoa, oh, Okay. See, I wouldn't identify as a rich man. I don't think I do. I, I think I am blessed with riches, but here is my treasure. That's, that's where my heart lies. And so the hardest part for me is, is not lay down the money. It's if I were told I have to leave my wife and my four children in order to follow Jesus, man, that would be tough. I got to tell you, I've talked with several people uh, and, and some even from this church who have told me in tears how difficult it has been to watch their own children walk away from God. I can't imagine. I, and I've, I've talked with people who are in my own family who have, have spoken with me through tears about just how hard it has been for their own children to say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And they know, they see these passages, they know what it says. It doesn't mean that they hate them, but it does mean I have to be willing to follow God anyway. Even with the backlash that I'm going to face as a result. Even though it might rip my family apart. I love my Savior. That would be my treasure. That's the part where I'm wondering, would I walk away at that point? Would I walk away from my wife and from my kids? But Jesus gives this illustration in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44, where he talks about a buried treasure out in a field. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this buried treasure, everyone. This buried treasure is like this man who goes out in the middle of a field, and he starts digging, and he finds this treasure, and it is deep. 
and it is beautiful. And it has more riches than he could have ever imagined. And so because he found it, he didn't want anybody else to know. So he dug a hole and buried the treasure again. And then he went back. He sold everything he owned. And he took the money from that and he went and bought the field. Can you imagine if your spouse came home and said, hey, guess what? I just quit my job and sold the house and everything for pennies on the dollar. And I found this field out in North Dakota, and I bought it. I don't know where we're going to live, but I bought that field. <laughs> How many spouses are thinking, have you considered an institution recently? How many of us are thinking, what is going on? But Jesus says, no, 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 it's this kingdom of God. He, he buries it because he knows he has so much more in that field than anything that the life before could ever have provided. In the same way, it's like a man who's searching for fine pearls and he finds the very best one he's ever seen in his life and he sells everything so that he can purchase that one pearl. This is what the kingdom of God is like because what he's saying, what Jesus, what God is speaking to each of us is that the kingdom of God is so much greater than anything we have in addition to anything that we could imagine that we think we want. God is saying, I have so much more laid out for you than that. Let me go back to the story of the rich young ruler because it's fascinating. He says, sell everything, give the money to the poor, come follow me. The rich man leaves. And Jesus looks, he starts talking to his disciples. And he said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He said, I tell you the truth, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. There actually were some tax collectors who probably had a little money who were there. But there are also some blue collar guys, some fishermen who were there as well and so they're thinking, okay, if a rich man is a camel, I still make some money. So am I like a house cat? And if I am a house cat, what are my chances of fitting through that eye of a needle? Because if you think it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then, well, if you're not as rich, are you a smaller animal? A house cat, a mouse, a hamster, a goldfish? It doesn't matter. It does not matter what animal you are. None of those animals can fit through the eye of a needle. And the disciples, for once, are smart and realize this. And so they say to Jesus, okay, Jesus, can, if that's the case, can anyone enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus looks and says, you know, for man, this is impossible. So basically, yeah, pretty much. But for God... All things are possible. And he's speaking to a number of things, but I love Luke's story because that's chapter 18, toward the end of it. But if you skip to chapter 19, the very next chapter, and you can make an argument for later that day, probably a few days later, but Jesus just gets done saying how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. For man, this is impossible. For God, all things are possible. Fast forward to 19, chapter 1. There's a man who's a tax collector. And this wasn't just any tax collector. He was like unanimously hated because he was the master of cheating people out of money. He'd say, you know, taxes would be $100. He'd say, hey, guys, taxes are $550 this year. And he'd pocket the extra money. Then people would go talk. Hey, taxes were $100. That was a lot, right? $100? He told me it was $300. Uh, 
He told me 550. He told me 1,000. Now everyone in the community hates this man. But he wears the symbol of the emperor. He's allowed to do what he wants, essentially. And so, but this Zacchaeus, he, he hears that this Jesus man, he allows tax collectors who cheat people out of money to follow him. And he walks around with all these other sinners who have a lot of messed up things going on in their life. And it's not just people who are blind, who are lame. It's also people who were unanimously hated by the community, like tax collectors. And Zacchaeus thinks, I want to see a man like this because this is never allowed. This is something that I never would have been permitted to follow a man like this. And I'm not saying I want to follow him. I just, I just want to see him. Well, Zacchaeus wasn't very tall. So... He looks out, tries to see. He can't see over the people who are in front of him as Jesus is walking by. So he runs way ahead, finds a sycamore tree, and climbs up it. Just because he doesn't know Jesus, but he wants to get a glimpse of this legendary figure. And it's as he's sitting there looking at this stranger named Jesus walking by. Jesus stops, looks up at the tree, at him, and thinks, oh, that's really cool. A celebrity's looking at me. And then he says, Zacchaeus. They'd never met before, but he somehow knows my name. Maybe he Facebook stalked him. We don't know. So as a result, he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree because I am going to your house today. And Zacchaeus comes down, and as they're on the way to the house, several people start following, including the chief priests, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and they say, who does, does he not know who Zacchaeus is? Everybody hates Zacchaeus. He's the worst. He has all this money, and it's because he basically stole it from everyone in the community. But because he has the emperor's protection, we can't do anything about it. Why would Jesus hang out with him, of all people? And while they're there, Zacchaeus knows this. He probably hears them while they're saying this. But he is sitting there along with other tax collectors, along with other people who were broken and lost and forgotten and had done so many things to create such a mess in their life that Jesus said, you are welcome here at the table also. That Zacchaeus finally looks in Jesus and says, Jesus, how about this? Half of everything I own, I'm just going to give it to the poor. And I know I still have half left. I still have, that's still a lot of money, but let me do this. I'm going to take that money and everybody I've cheated out of money, I'm going to pay them back four times over. Translation, by the time he's done, he won't have anything left. Because he's saying, I'm going to give it all up because I know that's what you'd want me to do. Here's an incredible story right here because Luke 18 is a story of a rich young ruler who walked away. Luke 19 starts with a story of a rich ruler where Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Now that is a beautiful story because like Jesus said, with man these things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. So I wanna talk about my treasure. I wanna talk about my family. Talk about my wife, my kids. I want to say this. I love my wife. I love my kids. I'm going to make a statement. Let me finish it before you're like, <gasps> okay. Marriage and parenting are two of the hardest things I have ever done in my life. Let me finish. But they are also two of the most rewarding things I have ever experienced. Shouldn't it be the same with faith? If your walk with Jesus Christ is something where you're like, eh, I mean, Sunday's fun. Cinco's got a lot of cool people. I'll go hang out. Don't get me wrong. We want you here. But shouldn't this be this struggle 
this challenge, this invitation to daily lay your cross down. Lay what you love so much and so dearly at the feet of Jesus. Because for Jesus, that rich young ruler, it was his money. But for us, it might be our family. It might be our friends. It might be something else. But Jesus is saying, and he, and he tells people in Matthew and in Luke, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Because in giving up the thing you value most, you will store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So I want to invite you to do one thing. Uh, I'm going to pray uh, as, as we finish, as the praise team is coming out. And um, I'm going to invite you to do one thing. Uh, Jim, Jim did a great job with communion. He prayed over the giving that we do. I'm going to invite you to do one little thing. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. I'd like to invite you to give 5% more of what you have already given this morning. Um, and now if you didn't give, give, give something, because 5% of zero is still zero. But if, but if you did, I, I want to invite you to, to give. And, and I want to also preface with this. We're not, we're not about to plan some big, masterful, amazing event. We're not about to take on some huge financial burden. Our church is in the black. We're, we're doing, that's, that's good, right? Yeah, red is bad, black is, yeah, we're, we're doing good. That's, that's why I'm not the church accountant. That's why Lewis is. So, so we're, we're in a good place. But this isn't a practice of the church needs help, so we should help. This is, I, I just want to lay down a part of what makes me feel secure. Give until it is uncomfortable and then give just a little bit more to show that your money, your possessions, they don't have a hold on you. Jesus does. So I'm gonna invite you to give one more time. I'm gonna pray over that and then we're gonna continue in our worship this morning. Let's pray. God, uh, whether it is our money or, or the people in our life, those who we love, may we take it and know it was never ours to begin with. Neither were we. For we and everything we know and love belong, God, to you. So in this moment, soften our hearts. Let us see all the things that are going on in the world and in our community where you are needed. And may we be people who say we belong to you. So take whatever we can offer. May this be an offering of love, of joy. May these sacred sacrifices, these things that we hold near and dear, may we put it at your feet and may we feel the light that shines upon us and may we hear you say, as Jesus said we would, well done, good and faithful servant. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks.